Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Let me tell you a little story. Many years ago, I was invited to a New Year's Eve party at the home of Richard Wilson, famous actor, star of One Foot in the Grave. No, I know you don't believe it. He didn't either. Anyway, it came to midnight and a lady next to me just grabbed me for New Year's kissing. And I realised it was Julie Christie, the actress. And then another actor, Alan Bates, came over and did a very strange wink at my girlfriend of the time from about 18 inches away. What do these two actors have in common, uh, Christie and Bates? Well, I'll tell you, they played Bathsheba Everdeen and Gabriel Oak in the film Far From the Madding Crowd. So we were brought together that night by Thomas Hardy, the man who wrote that novel and who wrote several fabulous novels that I studied during what I like to call my first degree. However, in 1896, when Jude the Obscure was published, Hardy got a bit of stick for its twisted morality, and so he gave up on novels and turned to poetry. Now, that could have been a disaster. Can a great champion of prose write the delicate, beautiful, fragile flowers that are poetry? The answer, a resounding yes. Only yeses resound, by the way. Noes, I don't know what they do. Anyway... So he wrote poetry and his first collection came out in 1898 and in the end he published about 900 poems. I know, but you know what? I love them, love them, love them. They are little unusual creatures. That's what I think. A writer called uh, Irving Howe said, and I think this is very pertinent. Any critic can and often does see all that is wrong with Hardy's poetry, but whatever it was that makes for his strange greatness is harder to describe. And I think when you first read Hardy's poetry, and this happened to me, you do think, what's this? But pretty soon, if you persevere, it starts to creep into your innermost parts. I'm going to go straight into one, although I should probably say that they have a tremendous variety of form, all sorts of uses of rhythm and rhyme and different length of lines. You will drop a syllable you're expecting or add one that you're not and it's a real, the way he uses the English language, it's like he learnt English from a book, but has never actually heard anyone speak it. And so he's slightly experimenting with the words. See what you think of this. The first poem I want to read is called Exeunt Omnes. Now, Exeunt Omnes is Latin, yes. But it's a stage direction. It means exit all. So everyone on stage leaves. And you'll see why it's called that in a minute. It's three five-line stanzas. 
So um, it won't detain you too long, but it's so... Listen out for the strange greatness, not to mention the great strangeness. Everybody else then going, and I still left where the fair was. Much have I seen of neighbour loungers making a lusty showing, each now past all-knowing. So the rhyme scheme there, A, B, C, A, A, the first, fourth and fifth lines rhyme, going, showing and knowing. Okay, that first one, it's quite hard to read. I'm just going to give you um, some of the punctuation in the first two lines. Everybody else, comma, then, comma, going, comma, end of first line. And I still left where the fair was, question mark, dot, dot, dot. Wow. So, everybody else then, going, and I still left where the fair was. What an opening. So everyone's going and leaving him, not at the fair, but where the fair was. What's going on? Much have I seen of neighbour loungers making a lusty showing. Neighbour loungers. I think neighbour suggests close to me, people like me. So I'm a bit of a lounger. I make a lusty showing. I pretend, you know, I'm not afraid of anything. I take life pretty easy on the surface. Each now past all knowing. And I think you're probably already getting the sense of this. Hardy is here discussing one of his all-time favourite topics, death. Everybody else then going. He's, um, this was written in 1913, June the 2nd, if you want to know, because Hardy often dates his poems. So Hardy born in 1840, he's about, I guess, 73 when this was uh, written. So it's that age where all your friends are dying. I've lost complete faith in that mathematics, but 1840 to 1913 is 73 years, ain't it? Everybody else then going, and I still left where the fair was. So this is an old man whose friends are dying, and he's not left at the fair, but the fair has gone. Life's excitement and colour, it's razzmatazz, it's metaphorical carousels have closed down and gone. Much have I seen of neighbour loungers making a lusty showing. I've seen people like me who pretend they don't care about death and all that. Each now past all knowing. They've gone. They've died. Stanza two. There is an air of blankness in the street and littered spaces. Thoroughfare, steeple, bridge and highway wizen themselves to lankness, kennels dribble dankness. If anyone says to you, what is Thomas Hardy's poetry like? I would suggest you chuck stanza two of Exeunt Omnes at them and let them chew on that. Let's look at it. There is an air of blankness. We're thinking now, hold it. We know the way this poem works. 
it's the first, fourth and fifth lines rhyming. So I know he's got to find two rhymes for blankness. There is an air of blankness in the street and the littered spaces. And I think that can mean, at this period, it can mean spaces with litter in them. But I think he means scattered various spaces around town. And then a very Hardy-esque list, which is a list that I think no one else would make to describe a town and its places. Thoroughfare, steeple, bridge and highway. It's an odd list. But what do they do, the thoroughfare, steeple, bridge and highway? Wizen themselves to lankness, kennels, dribble dankness. It's kind of unbelievable that he's got the guts to take on these kind of lines, these kind of rhymes. Wizen themselves to lankness means, I guess, to sort of shrink themselves to thinness to uh, almost lifelessness. So his friends are dying and the world seems to be losing its life as well. The fair has gone. Even the thoroughfare, steeple, bridge and highway wizen themselves to lankness. Kennels dribble dankness. So kennels, often the homes of the poor, Dribble dankness, they dribble damp on pleasantness. The world's going a bit wrong for the speaker. There's one more stanza to go. Let's kick off with a bit of alliteration. Folk all fade and wither as I wait alone where the fair was. Now that first line, folk all fade and wither, Sneaky, because it sounds like they fade and wither, but that wither has got an H, so it means where. Folk all fade, full stop, and wither. As I wait alone where the fair was. So, where? Where have they gone as I wait alone where the fair was? And here's his answer. Into the clammy and numbing night fog, whence they entered hither, Soon one more goes thither. Again, once he sets up wither as the first word to be rhymed, hither and thither are always going to be in the frame. Okay, folk all fade. If you are an older listener and anyone asks you what it's like to be older, I think folk all fade is a pretty good answer. And whither, where do they go as I wait alone where the fair was? And his answer, Hardy lost his Christian faith early on. And uh, we get evidence of that here. He, he imposes that on the speaker as well. Into the clammy and numbing night fog whence they entered hither. So that's where they came from. They've gone back into the numbing night fog. And again, great phrase. Soon one more goes thither. So soon I'll be joining them in the numbing night fog. The numbing night fog, I have to say, really reminds me of a thing in The Venerable Bede in his writing. And he talks about King Edwin. Bear with me. Don't, don't switch off. King Edwin of Northumberland, a Anglo-Saxon 
leader was sitting in his great hall with fires and jugglers and lots of food and people talking and he was sitting surrounded by his wisest counsellors and he was discussing whether they should convert to Christianity or not and one of his wise followers said well you know when we sit in here in our lovely warm bright lively great hall and a sparrow comes in through the window and then flies out through another window It has come from a dark, stormy, cold night that we can barely imagine why we're in our lovely, warm, great hall. And it goes back out into that stormy night. And if Christianity can explain what happens before the sparrow enters and after it leaves, then we maybe should investigate it because it would be good to know what's out there. Hardy has come to terms with the fact that we don't know. And so those folks who fade go into the clammy and numbing night fog whence they entered hither. So they came from there and they've gone back into it just like that sparrow in King Edwin of Northumberland's great Hall. I don't know if Hardy was thinking about that, but it really made me think about it. And at the end, he says, soon one more goes thither. I'm going to join them soon. This was written 2nd of June, 1913. Um, He lived for another 15 years. So wasn't as bad as he thought if he was referring to himself. Maybe the speaker of the poem, that fictional construct, died shortly afterwards. There's a nice quote from Hardy I'd like to read to you. He says, I hold that the mission of poetry, we all want to know what the mission of poetry is, why? What should it do? What's it about? I hold that the mission of poetry is to record impressions, not convictions. So he just wants to give you something that's affected him, something that is evocative. He doesn't want to teach you any lessons or give you any messages. You don't have to leave him instructed. That's not how he swings. A good example of that is the next poem, A Light Snowfall After Frost, is what it's called. Again, a few short stanzas. On the flat road a man at last appears. How much his whitening hairs owe to the settling snow's mute anchorage and how much to life's rough pilgrimage one cannot certify. Again, to me it's like poetry from another planet, really. We've gone straight in. On the flat road, a man at last appears, like we've been waiting for someone to appear in this snowy landscape. We haven't. We've just arrived. Maybe the speaker's been waiting. Right. On the flat road, a man at last appears. And then the whole thing about his appearance is a debate about his whitening hairs and how he got them. Let's hear it. How much his whitening hairs owe to the settling snow's mute anchorage. 
So he's got white hair, white beard, whatever. How much is whitening hairs owe to the settling snow's mute anchorage? So the settling snow anchoring itself to his normal coloured hair, mutely, silently, that might make him look like he's got whitening hairs. It might not actually be what he looks like sans snow. And how much to life's rough pilgrimage? So it might be that he's had a hard life, a rough pilgrimage, and that's why he's got whitening hairs. The snow is neither... Well, if I may say so, hither or thither. But the, the way it ends, how much is whitening hairs owe to the settling snow's mute anchorage and how much to life's rough pilgrimage one cannot certify. One cannot certify. It's so unpoetic, it seems to me. But it works. It just... I'm going to say it again. The use of language is unsettling but utterly compelling i find next stanza the frost is on the wane and cobwebs hanging close outside the pane pose as festoons of thick white worsted there of their pale presence no eye being aware till the rhyme made them plain so the frost is on the way and the frost is trying to go. I guess it's that moment when the snow comes and it feels a bit warmer. And cobwebs hanging close outside the pane, i.e. the window pane, pose as festoons of thick white worsted there. Worsted, worsted, is a sort of a fine yarn. So it looks festoons of thick white worsted. It looks a bit like Christmas decorations, I suppose. Of their pale presence, no eye being aware till the rhyme made them plain. So no one even noticed these cobwebs till the rhyme made them plain. Now rhyme, R-I-M-E, is another word for frost. So we didn't see them until the frost came and, and made the cobwebs visible. And then the snow came and uh, thickened them up into a festoon. But obviously he chooses that word rhyme because it can refer to this poem as well as the frost. So of their pale presence, no eye being aware till the rhyme made them plain. So this poem... The speaker of this poem observes at a level most people don't observe. He looks deeper than other people look. And this is what poets do, of course. You know that thing when you go to an art gallery and after 25 minutes you're exhausted and you realise you've just been looking in a big, deep, strong way, not the way you normally look at the world. Uh, this is what poets do and this is what he's... I suppose he's bragging, in a way, that a lot of people would have not noticed these cobwebs until the poet pointed them out. OK, next stanza, penultimate stanza, and um, slight difference now. He's, he's not frightened to change the form mid-poem. A second man comes by, 
His roddy beard brings fire to the pallid scene. His coat is faded green, hence seems it that his mien wears something of the dye of the buried home trees that he passes nigh. Okay, so suddenly we've got a bunch of shorter lines in the middle of the stanza. So a second man comes by. We're anticipating a meeting. That surely is going to be the crux of the poem, isn't it? What happens when these two men meet? Anyway, a second man comes by. His ruddy beard brings fire to the pallid scene. So he's got a red beard and in all this whiteness he seems to bring fire to the pallid scene, the pale white scene. It's a bit like, you must know the story of two great rival painters, Turner and Constable, had seascapes been exhibited in a in a big high profile exhibition and on the night before an exhibition it was normal for artists to go in just make a little few changes if they want to slight adjustments and constable did his minor things and was happy and then turner arrived and um he put a red dot in the middle of his seascape a single red dot that's all he did and the whole painting changed the colours, the comparisons, everything was transformed by this red dot. It was an absolute, fabulous, magical flourish. And I think of that when uh, a second man comes by, his ruddy beard brings fire to the pallid scene. Then you get these three short lines. His coat is faded green, hence seems it that he's mean, wears something of the dye, and then ending on a on an eleven syllable of the buried home trees that he passes nigh. So, his coat is faded green, hence seems it that his mean, his, his appearance, wears something of the dye of the buried home trees. Buried as in B-E-R-R-I-E-D. So they have berries. Of the buried home trees that he passes nigh. Get it? Home trees are like holly. I don't think you'd even distinguish them from holly. And so the red beard and the green coat makes him look like the red berries and the green leaves of the holly. So whereas that first man that appeared became part of the snowy scene, this guy also almost absorbed by the landscape, but this time the flora and fauna, the home trees. He looks a bit like holly. Last stanza. The snow feathers so gently swoop that though but half an hour ago the road was brown and now is starkly white, a watcher would have failed defining quite when it transformed it so. The snow feathers, these feathers falling down that are snow, so gently swoop that though but half an hour ago the road was brown, so it, everything looked unsnowy and now is starkly white, so those 30 minutes have transformed the place. A watcher would have failed defining quite when it transformed it so.
So very hard to know when the brown road became white. That actual moment seemed to just pass. It seemed to be brown and then it was white. It's a strange observation, isn't it, about the moment of transformation of the road to a snowy road. And the poem ends on that. There's no apparent conclusion. You feel you've been left hanging. But I think Hardy's again talking about ageing like he was in uh, in the last poem, Exeunt Omnes. Earlier in this poem, you'll remember, he mixed the ideas of getting white hair from Snow's mute anchorage and getting it from a long life's rough pilgrimage. And then the roddy bearded man arrived. But when does a person's hair go from ruddy to white? When do we pass from youth to old age? Trust me, we scarcely notice. It's like that road becoming white and the watcher struggling to define exactly when it happened. Yeah, the ruddy bearded man in his green coat might look like an evergreen, but uh, believe me, the snow falls fast. And before we know it, all is white. Man, I mean, what a beautiful, short, nuanced expression of how old age creeps up on us, this poem is. Um, great work. I, um, By the way, I didn't tell you the date of this poem because I don't know it. And in the space where Hardy normally writes the date of a poem at the end of this one, it says instead... Near Surbiton. So uh, we didn't get the date, but we, you know, we got uh, the postcode. Okay, I'm going to do one more if you'll let me. I mean, you can clear off now and say I know enough about Hardy to bring him up at a cocktail party, but I wish you'd stay for this one because what Hardy is most famous for, maybe, I mean, as I've said, death is a biggie with him, but unrequited love the sadness of the lover is uh, is really something he's very very good at and so i want to end with a poem i really like called a countenance not accountants that would be a less exciting topic a countenance so a face and uh, Hardy claimed that he could bury an emotion in heart or brain for 40 years. Just put it out of the way. And then he said he could, he could exhume it at the end of that time as fresh as when interred, I-N-T-E-R-R-E-D, in case there's any confusion. So he dug it up as fresh as when he buried it 40 years ago, that emotion. He could feel it, and I guess he used that to fuel poems such as A Countenance. It's a bit like the non-putrefication of saints you may have heard of in the Roman catacombs, buried away and then up as fresh as a daisy. Here's A Countenance, three stanzas, two long, one short. Just telling you the shape, really, I'm seeing on the page. OK. Her laugh 
can I just warn you that this is one of my favourite opening lines ever. Her laugh was not in the middle of her face quite, as a gay laugh springs. It was plain she was anxious about some things I could not trace quite. Okay, that's the first four lines of that first stanza. Her laugh was not in the middle of her face quite. As a gay laugh springs. So a gay laugh, a laugh, a spontaneous, natural, happy laugh. The speaker associates with the middle of the face. That is, that laugh happens centre stage, full on, loud and proud. But her laugh was not in the middle of her face quite as a gay laugh springs. It was plain she was anxious about some things. I could not trace quite. Very hardy to rhyme face quite and trace quite, by the way. So there's something that she's worried about, and that's stopping her laugh from being fully expressed. It's somehow distorted by anxiety. Remaining three lines of this stanza, and this is hardy gets stranger and stranger. Her curls were like fur cones, piled up brown, or rather like tight-tied sheaves. It seemed they could never be taken down. So he's uh, gone from a laugh now to a hair. Her curls were like fur cones, piled up brown, or rather like tight-tied sheaves. It's interesting, this, isn't it? Because it's almost like um, live poetry uh, that it's just happening because he didn't need to give us the fur cones if he then decided they were more like tight-tied sheaves. Why even bring up the fur cones? It's like we're seeing into Hardy's notebook. And I think what he's uh, creating here, the the feeling is that the speaker is remembering now and he wants to get it right. Her curls were like fur cones piled up brown or rather like tight, tied sheaves. He's a bit like Google Earth. He's closing in on her and he wants to get it right. He wants to say exactly what her hair was like. He wants the simile to be perfect. It seemed they could never be taken down. This is the curls, I hasten to add. That's got a dot, dot, dot at the end, which he likes to use now and again. And here, I think, when I first read that line, it seemed they could never be taken down. I thought it felt a bit clumsy, but I realise now from the rhythm that what he's trying to suggest is the speaker slightly trailing away into distraction. The memory of this woman is slightly causing him to fade into himself. Her curls were like fur cones piled up brown, or rather like tight-tied sheaves. It seemed they could never be taken down. Dot, dot, dot. And I think he's thinking back to her, and I think there's a sense of yearning there, of how she perhaps remained unattainable. It 
seem they could never be taken down. If you want to put it in the modern parlance, she never let her hair down with the speaker. It gets stranger. Next stanza. And her lips were too full, some might say. I did not think so. Anyway, the shadow her lower one would cast was green in hue whenever she passed bright sun on midsummer leaves. What? So this is other people's opinion. And her lips were too full, some might say. I did not think so anyway. And that line has a full stop after so. So it, the feeling of it is, and her lips were too full, some might say. I did not think so. And then he's again, he's slightly drifting away. Anyway, and now he comes in with the details. The shadow, her lower one, so her lower lip, the shadow her lower one would cast was green in hue whenever she passed bright sun on midsummer leaves. So such is his recollection of this woman and such, we can't help but think, such was the close study of her face when he was in her presence that he could tell us that the shadow of her lower lip when she passed midsummer leaves that were being illuminated by bright sun, the shadow under her lip would be green because of the reflection of those sunlit leaves. You know when somebody holds a buttercup under your chin and you get that yellow glow and they say you like butter? But to notice... I have to say it again. Anyway, the shadow her lower one would cast was green in hue whenever she passed bright sun on midsummer leaves. And whenever she passed, it's a brief flashing moment, this green shade, this hue of her lower lip shadow. But he noticed it. And I think what's happening here, he's talking about, you know, uh, a laugh wasn't quite right and um, I never saw her with her hair down. And, uh, yeah, she's got this, like, a when she walked past uh, Bright Sun on Midsummer Leaves, she had that uh, green shadow under her lower lip. This is a guy who was studied. This woman, like one would study uh, a great work of art. The stanza ends, Alas, I knew not much of her and lost all sight and touch of her. Really? Did you not know much of her? You clearly, I mean, it's like you kept notes of the absolute fine detail of her appearance. You lost all sight and touch of her. He almost... Didn't, did he? Did he lose all sight? He seems to have retained the mental picture of her in fabulous fine detail. And if he says and lost all sight and touch of her, doesn't that mean that there was some touching, there was some intimacy of some kind, otherwise he couldn't have lost it? He might mean as in when you keep in touch with someone, but... 
I don't think so. Anyway, last stanza, and suddenly it's only four lines. So, just to remind you, alas, I knew not much of her and lost all sight and touch of her. So, you know, she's that's from the past. If otherwise, should I have minded the shy laugh not in the middle of her mouth quite? And would my kisses have died of drought quite? It's like drought, thirst. And would my kisses have died of drought quite as love became unblinded? So, if I hadn't lost all sight and touch of her, if otherwise, should I have minded the shy laugh not in the middle of her mouth quite? Now, we think, oh, he's on about that laugh again, but he isn't, is he? Because the original laugh from that very first line, her laugh was not in the middle of her face quite as a gay laugh springs. But now he's saying the shy laugh not in the middle of her mouth quite, not in the middle of her face quite, in the middle of her mouth quite. And this is not a gay laugh, it's a shy laugh. This guy has kept a catalogue of the individual laugh types of this woman. So when she did a slightly worried laugh, it was not in the middle of her face quite. When she did a shy laugh, it was not in the middle of her mouth quite. It was slightly to the side of her mouth. When people laugh with a slight twist, she was shy, she was coy. She laughed at the corner of her mouth. And would my kisses have died of drought quite as love became unblinded? So would my kisses, are these kisses that he's remembering or kisses he's imagining? Would my kisses have died of drought quite? Would they have dried up as love became unblinded? And that's a negative ending, isn't it? Would it have all, if I had stayed in touch with her, would I have loved her more and more and more to the point where the fact that her shy laugh wasn't in the middle of her mouth quite, that wouldn't have bothered me, those little things. Or would it have gone the other way and would my kisses have died of drought quite as love became unblinded? Would I have got fed up of her? As love became unblinded is a fabulous negative, a sort of assumption that it begins blind. And that's how it ends, wondering, would I, what would have happened if I'd stayed with this woman? If otherwise, should I have minded the shy laugh not in the middle of her mouth quite? And would my kisses have died of drought quite, as love became unblinded? I will never know. And that is the tough ending. I'll never know how it would have gone with this woman. Would I have got bored or would our love have got deeper and deeper and deeper? And it's that. Now the speaker is left hanging as well as the reader. And that was written in 1884, if you're interested. Those are three Thomas Hardy poems that I love. I think he's really very special and 
very modern, really, that sort of reckless approach to language and form and rhyme. I, I love his freedom and his... Uh, I love his guts, the way he just takes on strangeness. And it's so close to bad poetry whilst being brilliant. It's that... It's like those musicians that operate on the edge of discord and it's there that they find the real treasures and the real good stuff. Read more Hardy. There's 900 poems to choose from and um, a lot of them are quite short, not all of them. But I'd say I, I can't remember reading a Hardy poem that just left me cold. I um, urge you to investigate. Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. See you next week.